good morning, church. Oh, hallelujah. Isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord? Awake, ready to worship and praise and hear from God's word. Let's stand together and we're going to sing Jesus Shall Reign from our hymn book. Let's sing together. Jesus shall reign where the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and God in whom 
salvation and died on earth that we might live above. Give of thy sons to bear the message glorious. Give of thy wealth to speed them on their way. Pour out thy soul for them in prayer victorious. And all thou spendest, Jesus will repay. Publish glad tidings, tidings of me please. God, you are good, and it's good that we can be in your house today. We know that you are here already, but we invite you into our presence. God, we invite you to, to hear our songs, to hear our praise. God, may they bring a smile to your face and joy to your heart. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Kathy Rains. I'm the Minister of Administration here at University Baptist Church, and I'm glad to be here today. And I'm glad to see you here today. If you're a part of our church family, it's great to be family, isn't it? I'm glad we are. And if you are not a part of our family yet, I'm glad you're here today, and I hope you feel like family before you leave today. I want you to meet someone this morning, meet someone you don't know, or reconnect with somebody that you do know and haven't seen in a while. Let them know that they are loved by God and by you and by our church family here at UBC. If you are new with us, we want to know about that and we want to connect with you. So inside your worship guide, you'll find a guest registration form. I hope you'll complete that, put that in the offering plate as it comes by later in the service so that we can know you, our staff can pray for you, and we can reach out to you this week and help you find a way to connect and belong here at UBC and in the larger Christian family. We're going to have a time now where we stand and greet one another, and I hope you'll do that. Embrace somebody, uh, welcome them. Kids, I'd love to invite you down here to the front. Miss Caroline will be here with a word for you. Please stand now, greet somebody near you. And thank you for being at UBC this morning. Oh, 
is raised to Jesus. Sing to the King for his returning. We watch and we pray. We will be ready. The dawn of that day will join in singing with all the redeemed. Satan is vanquished and our Jesus is King. Come, let us sing a song, song declaring we belong to Jesus. All we need, hey, yeah, yeah, lift up a heart of praise. Sing now with voices raised to Jesus. Sing to the King. Amen. You can be seated. You know, we are at the beginning of a very special time. I don't know if you have begun to think about it yet, but Easter is coming up. And sometimes thing, people think about Easter eggs. Sometimes people think about candy. And sometimes we begin to think about the amazing price that Jesus paid and the amazing gift that we got whenever he died on the cross. Now, for each one of your families... I'm going to pass out these one per family, okay? And it's going to help us as we prepare for Easter. It has some different ideas on there, and it has some different suggestions on there. And I had a couple of friends that, might, that said they were willing to read those to us. Now, Josiah, could you hold this? So you guys are going to make one of those, and then after you read, you're going to put it in the hole, okay? So we know these are going to help us think and get ready for Easter. Are you ready to read yours? Okay, you go first. Read First Corinthians fifteen four. Find a recipe for the resurrection cookies online and work with your family or friends to make some. How does the oven remind you of Jesus' tomb? So we make these cookies and we oh go ahead and put it in Josiah's box. So we make the cookies and we think about that when Jesus was buried in the tomb, did he stay dead? No, he didn't. He came back alive so that we can be alive in Christ. I think I have another friend who has one to read. Will you read this one? Read Mark fourteen sixty two. Look up at the clouds. Of what coming event can the clouds remind those who love Jesus? So when we look up at the clouds, what can the clouds remind us about Jesus? Hmm. That he lives in heaven. Oh my goodness, what a perfect answer. That's exactly right. When we look up in the clouds, we can remember that Jesus lives in heaven and that his love for us is forever. Okay, who wants to read next? Do you want to go, birthday girl? Read John fifteen thirteen. Jesus loves all people. He died instead of... Barnabas. How has Jesus shown that he is your friend too? 
So how has Jesus shown us that he is our friend? How do you think? He's let us live on the earth. You know what? He had such a wonderful gift when he made this world, and he's sharing it with us. That is a great friend. Okay, I think we have a couple more so that we can be ready. Help prepare us for Easter. Um, talk a walk in a garden. How can walking in a garden remind us of Jesus and his love for us? Oh, how could walking in a garden remind us of Jesus' love for us. How do you think? God made the world. That's a really good answer. You know what? I love the ways that these help us think about Jesus, and they help us prepare for him. Okay, last one. Here we go. Okay, you know what? So each one of your families. Oh, Charlotte, you have one? Do you want to read yours? Okay. Read Isaiah 53, 7, in what ways did Jesus act like a lamb when he... When he suffered? When he suffered and died to save us. Why is Jesus called the lamb? of God. Talk about this with someone in your family. Ooh, the last question. Jesus as the Lamb of God? Hmm, why do we call Jesus the Lamb of God? Um, because he's the um, kid of God. Because he is the kid of God? You know what? I have never thought about that. But a lamb is often called a kid. And Jesus is definitely the kid of God. And you know what? We are able to have some wonderful conversations with our kids, and we will have wonderful opportunities to be able to... Just let him keep that. We'll have wonderful opportunities to look through Scripture together. So for each one of you guys, if you'll pick one of these up, just one per family, and they help us prepare. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, for this time together. And Father, we thank you for this season where we begin to think about the amazing gift that you gave us, ways that we can be reminded to think about you, how you provided for us and how you care for us. And I thank you for the creative responses that you lead these children in that remind us of how freshly our eyes can be when we look at you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Amen. It's in the power of Christ we stand. Let's stand together in that power and let's, let's continue in worship, lifting up our praises and our adoration to him. The ends of the earth, from the ends of the earth, from the depths of the sea, from the depths of the sea, from the heights of the heavens, from the heights of the heavens, your name be praised from the hearts of the weak, from the hearts of the weak, from the shouts of the strong, from the shouts of the strong, from the of the people, this song we raise, Lord, all throughout endless ages, you will be crowned with praises, Lord, most high, exalted in every nation, sovereign of all From the ends of the earth, from the ends of the earth, from the depths of the sea, from the depths of the sea, from the heights of the heavens, from the heights of the heavens, your name be praised from the hearts of the weak. From the shouts of the strong, from the shouts of the strong, from the lips of all people, from the lips of all people, this song we raise, Lord, throughout the endless ages, you will be crowned with praises, Lord, most high, exalted in Sovereign of all creation, Lord, most high, be magnified, oh. Throughout the endless ages, you will be crowned with praises, Lord, most high, exalted in Sovereign of all creation, Lord, most high, be magnified, be magnified. You give hope, you restore, 
Every heart that is broken, great are you, Lord. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only. That's all there is to do it. Let's sing that again. Join us as we sing. You give life. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken great are you lord it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise we pour out our praise it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise to you only. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only. And all the will shout your praise our hearts will cry these bones will sing great are you lord and all the earth will shout your praise our hearts will cry these bones will sing great are you Lord? All the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry. These bones will sing. Great are you Lord? It's your breath in our lungs. So we praise we pour out our praise it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise to you only it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise we pour out our praise it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise to you only. Amen. Thank you all. Sounded great. Well, today we will complete our discussion on discipleship. Uh, we've been spending quite a bit of time working through this particular key conviction, 
throughout the month of February, looking at just not only the identity that we have as disciples, but the work that's been entrusted to us to go and make disciples, what it means to find the goal of that work, which is that we're not trying to just grow a church, we're trying to ignite a movement, right? That this is the thing that God has called us to. And we complete this discussion this morning by looking at how do we do it? What, what is the method? What does it really look like? And really, we're going to be talking about evangelism this morning, really. That, to me, is the how. That is the answer. A lot of people would maybe put evangelism and discipleship in separate categories. But for me, my conviction is that discipleship is the overarching topic, and evangelism is a mechanism in which we make disciples. And so I look forward to this conversation this morning. But here's how I want to approach it. As is often the case when we gather on a Sunday morning, I want this to be more than a sermon. I want this to be more than just an opportunity where you come and you have a chance to hear a message, maybe take some notes, maybe catch some takeaways. It needs to be more than that. It needs to be more than just a service. So what I'm hoping for all of us this morning is that we can embrace the sacredness of this moment and be reminded of the power of trusting God. And so here's my question for you as we begin this morning. What do you carry? What do you bring through those doors this morning? What's, what's the anxiety? What's the burden? What's the struggle, the confusion, the pain? What, what do you carry this morning? See, my hope and my prayer is that we can take this opportunity to come before the Father, all of us together, and let those things go and trust them to Him. See, what the scriptures tell us is that we're not meant to walk through this life and lean on our own understanding. That's, that's not the goal. We, we won't ever truly be able to grasp the reasons, the whys, and the certainties of life. Right? So we don't lean on our own abilities. We don't lean on our understanding. But what we need to do is in every situation, every circumstance, every season, we need to acknowledge God and trust him, and then he will guide our steps. So let's let this morning, this moment, be an opportunity for us to trust the living God. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, come. Father, send your spirit in its fullness. Do not delay, do not hold back. Awaken our hearts to trust you and to serve you. We love you, Father, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'll begin this morning. I do have a little bit of unsettling news that I went through this past week. Um, a couple days ago, I lost my credit card, all right? Never really fun to lose your credit card, in case you were wondering. And, and so anytime you lose something, you immediately spring into some sort of investigative work, right? So we've been under quite the investigation at my house the last few days, and here's what we've surmised. The last time that I saw my credit card occurred on a Tuesday, this past Tuesday to be in fact. We, my family had decided to go to a baseball game there in Arlington, TCU, number one team in the country, by the way, shout out was taking on UTA Mavericks, and so we thought we'd go down and, and watch the game. And so we, we couldn't find any seats, it was a packed house, so we walked down to the third baseline, found some picnic tables and kind of this green space where the kids could play. And it's here where the story becomes a little confusing. Now, because this is an appending investigation and the case is yet to be solved, um, I'm gonna protect the identities of those who may or may not have had anything to do with the disappearance of my credit card, okay? But here we were at this table and one individual came to me and said, hey, I forgot some money. Would you mind loaning me the credit card? To which I happily obliged. I handed it over, said, go, spend freely. And that individual left, went to the concession stands and bought some food for everyone, 
comes back to the table, and at this point is where we get two different versions of the story. We don't really know what happened next, but, but one version of the story would be that the person who bought the refreshments came back, set everything down, and gave them to everyone, and willingly gave the card back to its rightful owner. However, that's just one story. The other possible story is that this individual came back with these refreshments, sat them on the table, but never really returned the card to the rightful owner. So it doesn't really matter which side you might be on this morning. That's not why I'm bringing that up, because it doesn't change the fact that the card is missing. Now, whenever I realized the next day that my card was missing, first thought was, okay, I want to make sure somebody else didn't get it. Okay, I want to make sure nobody's out there buying TVs and fancy jewelry on my behalf. And so I logged into my account, no unusual spending, so that was good. So it just legitimately seemed to be lost. So I did some work. You know, I called the concession stand people, called the ticket office, even called the campus police, spoke to their little lost and found apartment. No luck, okay? And so I still stand before you today without a credit card, okay? So the case remains, remains to be solved. It's been a little inconvenient, but it has reminded me that when we lose something, we often go through a little bit of a search. And the way in which we search, the intensity and the intentionality of that search is often driven by the value that we assign to the object that is lost, correct? So we kind of have a spectrum, right? So let's, let's start on this side of the spectrum when we lose things that aren't that valuable, right? Let, let me give you an example. Uh, socks, okay? I'm losing socks all the time. Can I get an amen? Right? I'm not the only one, right? It's one of life's great mysteries. I mean, we put both of them in the wash, right? And then all these shenanigans happen and only one of them makes it out. I don't understand it, okay? But I'm, I'm losing socks all the time. And when I do, I take a look and I just think, eh, maybe it'll show up. And that's the extent of my searching, okay? I don't really just tear the house over looking for these socks. If they show up, great. If they don't, I'll buy some new ones, okay? So that would be one end of the spectrum. Then you have something maybe in the middle, which would be the credit card, right? You'd, you're not happy that you lost this. You're going to search and try to find it. But let's be honest, at some point, you're going to move on. I'm, I'm about a day or so away from just calling the credit card company and saying, hey, I've misplaced it. Can you send me some new ones? All right, and then you just get the replacement and you move on. But then you have the third category. And this category over here is when you lose something, well, it hurts. Right? This, is, this one is painful. And thankfully, I've really only had maybe one or two experiences that occurred in that category. Let, let me share with you one of them. Okay? Now, to set the stage, what, what made this so difficult is that I'm a bit of a pack rat, okay? I, and part of that is because I have a tendency to just interject sentimental value in just about everything, okay? which is problematic for me at this stage in life because my children are at ages where they just mass-produce artwork. I mean, it's just massive quantities. It doesn't matter if they're at church, if they're at school, if they're at home, they just walk around with a Crayola looking for something to color, okay? So when I start cleaning up the house, I go through all these pages and I look at them and I'm having to face the decision, do I throw it or do I keep it? And that's really difficult for me, okay? I'll come across like a little paper with yellow squiggly lines on it and I'll be like, oh, let's save that one, you know? And so if that's me, if I can somehow inject sentimental value in these random drawings, imagine the pain and the frustration I felt the day that I realized I lost my wedding ring, okay? Now, other than people in my life, there's really not an object that I possess that I find to be more sentimentally valuable to me than my wedding ring, okay? It is irreplaceable in my mind. And this made me somewhat frustrated uh, because if there was ever going to be somebody in our marriage that was going to lose their wedding ring, it wasn't going to be me, it was going to be Jennifer. I mean, I never take mine off, ever, for anything, for any reason whatsoever. Jennifer, on the other hand, 
Man, she's, she's leaving them by the sink. She'll leave it by the restroom. She'll leave it in the dresser and all these things. And I'll always tell her, look, you're going to lose that someday. And it's not like your phone. I can't call your wedding rings to find it. Okay, so keep a hold of it. And, and yet, she's always managed to maintain it. And then this one day, I lose mine. And that was frustrating to me, very humbling, by the way. Frustrating also because I knew that I was on the verge of losing it. It was about a year ago, and it, for whatever reason, my ring was just really loose on my hand, and I could feel it start to slip off in just everyday use. And so I knew it was happening. I would tell her, I'm about to lose this thing. I need to get it resized. And so the fact that I never did anything about it really frustrated me. So I, I sat down watching TV late one night, and, and I have this habit of just kind of spinning my wedding ring around my finger. And so I reached down to do that, and that's when I realized it wasn't there. And immediate panic set in. I mean, like, I just get up off the couch. I'm like, it's missing. It's gone. And I tell Jennifer, like, I don't know where it is. And, and we start looking all over the house and can't find it anywhere. And like you do in any situation when you lose something, you begin to retrace your steps, right? Where could it be? So I started thinking, well, I came home and, and I played with the kids outside. And we, we did a lot. We ran around. We played tag. We did a whole bunch of stuff. It's probably outside. So middle of the night, I get this flashlight, I go in the backyard, go in the front yard, go all over our house, and I'm just shining the light everywhere I can, hoping to see something glimmer, and we find it. Can't find anything, right? So then I start thinking, okay, well, where else could it be? Oh, I took the trash out. Maybe it's in the trash. And so I go, and I find the trash, and I start digging through that nasty garbage. Let me just tell you, there's nothing to enjoy about rummaging through garbage, right? And so I'm, I'm walking through it, hoping that I can find it, and again, nothing. So I've pretty much looked all over the house this first night and, and not any success. And so I go to bed very distraught but hopeful that maybe the next day when there's light outside, I'll see it in the yard or maybe it's at the office and just I can find it when I go to work. I don't see it the next morning. I, I go to the office, look around again, nothing. Tell my colleagues, hey, I'm missing my ring. Please, if you see it, let me know. Throughout the day, nothing. Go back home, search some more, double check the yard and again, Nothing happens. And so at this point, I go to bed that second night, and I'm, I'm pretty distraught. Now, reality's starting to set in. I'm going to have to replace this thing. And I'm pretty upset about it. Like, I wake up the next day fairly depressed. I mean, it was all I could think about. So I'm going to work, and people are like, hi, Jeremiah. And I look at him, and I'm just like, hi. You know, I mean, I'm just so distraught by the fact that I've lost this ring. So I'm sitting at my desk, and I start thinking, okay, well, don't just think about where you were. Think about what you did. You know, what, what are some things you did those couple days ago? And it was in that moment that I remember that, that a couple days before in my office, I had gone through this little basket that had, I don't know, old video equipment. I can't remember. I was looking for a cable or something. And it maybe, maybe it slipped off in there. And so I'm sitting at my desk and I look across at the bookshelf and there it is. There's the basket. And I stand up with hope and expectation and I swiftly move across the room and I grab the basket off of the shelf and I start tearing things out bit by bit. And as I get down to the bottom of the basket, there it is in all of its glory and beauty, my wedding ring. It was like time stopped and the heavens opened and the angels descended upon me and saying, hallelujah, right? And I just got up and I let everybody know I found it. I mean, I just was screaming in my office, man. I picked that thing up. I was like Frodo Baggins, man. I wasn't going to lose that for the rest of my life. Put that thing on me. I was so excited. Okay, now here's the thing. All right, anytime a preacher tells you they're going to talk about evangelism, you just go ahead and bank on them telling you a story about how they lost something and found it, right? It's just a natural story to expect. The application is pretty obvious, but let me at least highlight two reasons for why I use those stories of what it is that we do when we search for something. 
the things that I want us to focus on this morning is this. Um, when we consider the act of evangelism, what's important for us is that whenever we lose something, it, we have to know what it is we're searching for, right? Well, that's pretty intuitive, but it doesn't matter how valuable it is or which thing we're considering, I could always describe the object that was lost. I could tell you what the sock looked like, the credit card looked like, the ring, right? We have to know what we're looking for. And I actually think that's one of the challenges we have with evangelism, is we look at techniques and we look at strategies, but we oftentimes go out and we don't even really know what we're trying to find. So that's gonna be the bulk of our message today. But I'm gonna close with at least one other word that as this story reflects, is that the value of that which is lost is what dictates the intensity and the intentionality for which we search for something. And so we wanna be reminded of the value of the things that God has asked us to seek and to save. Okay, so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna be in Luke chapter eight. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Now, as we begin this conversation, I, I wanna take some time and, and just acknowledge again that so much of this month that we've discussed this topic of discipleship has been driven by multiple conversations several books, um, multiple people who have really helped shape my thinking in this regard. Uh, one example that I should point out is, is T for T. It's a book that's written by Steve Smith. It captures the movement that has taken place in East Asia over the last decade or so. So much of what we've talked about both today and in previous times have come from that book. Um, I mentioned Kevin Greeson last week, a mentor of mine, a, a great missiologist and he actually has helped me think through this parable that we're gonna look at today in a very fresh and new perspective. He wrote his dissertation on this parable. And so it's these types of conversations and these people that have helped me understand new ways to think about evangelism. And so we're gonna be in Luke chapter eight. And if you look at verse one, it really sets the tone for this topic, okay? It just mentions that Jesus is traveling from town to town and when he goes, he, declare, he proclaims the good news of the kingdom of God, right? Now that is a pretty powerful statement that gives us an understanding and awakens us to the importance of evangelism, right? He's proclaiming. It's this idea of announcing, to declare, to make known. And what is it that he is proclaiming but the good news? This is euangelion, right? This is the Greek word where we get the word evangelism or gospel. In its simplest form, it means to, to share a message of joy. Right? I loved one definition that says it's to announce a victory. Okay, so you have this proclamation that starts at the beginning of chapter 8 that Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And that's what we can't forget, that so many times we reduce the message of evangelism to just Jesus dying on the cross, which is significant and at the center of it. But what Jesus was doing in his arrival and in his death and resurrection was proclaiming the kingdom of God. And that's the message that was so transformative. Okay, so he sets the tone for evangelism, that this is what we are to do, to, to engage in this manner of discipleship is to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Now, in, in order for us to begin to understand what that looks like in our life, we need to first start this conversation this morning and consider the problem, don't we? Let, let's at least start there. And, and let me go first. Okay, let me just tell you that as we talk about evangelism this morning, I do not stand before you as somebody who has it all figured out, any stretch of the imagination, okay? In fact, I would tell you that for the bulk of my life that I've been a believer, I have struggled with evangelism. If anything, I've been disobedient. 
And so I stand before you today, not as somebody that's got it figured out, but someone who has recently repented of that disobedience. And for the past year or so, I've said, okay, no more. I'm gonna figure out how to do this. And, and I, don't, I don't have it down yet, but I can tell you that I'm trying. And, and I've learned some incredible things on this journey in the last year or so. But the other thing that I would tell you is that that struggle that I've had, I think, is, is somewhat indicative of all of us, right? That, that research is going to suggest that most of us struggle with sharing our faith. LifeWay did some research a couple years ago, and they indicated that, that 80% of churchgoers are going to acknowledge that sharing their faith is essential, is important. But up to 60% of them, when surveyed, hadn't shared their faith with anybody in the past six months. And even more so, when you go beyond not even just sharing your faith, but inviting someone to church, almost 50% hadn't invited anybody to church in the last six months. That's a problem. Hey, that's a problem, and yet that's the reality is that most of us know it's important, but very few of us do anything about it. Now, why is that? I, I think the instinctive reaction is we may say, well, I don't know what to say. And I wanna push back on that this morning. And if, the, if that's the thought that enters your head, can I just challenge you for a moment and say, that can't really be true for a believer, right? Because if you believe in the gospel, then you know what to say. If you can't share the gospel, if you don't know what the gospel is, then I question if you actually ever believed it, right? So if we are believers, we know the message. So it's not really, we don't know what to say. I think the greater challenge is, we don't know how to say it. I think that's the issue. And that's what we wanna to try to figure out a little bit of today. Here's the reason we struggle with it. We, we end up seeing two extremes, don't we? Like, here's one, one extreme, we see the radical, that's gonna stand up on the street corner and, and they're gonna hold up these poster boards that have all the sins listed and they're gonna have a megaphone and they're gonna be screaming at people and telling them how they're all going to hell. Wildly effective strategy, by the way, right? So we see that person and we go, well, I don't wanna be that. And so we resist that approach, right? And we think, well, that's, that's not at all who I wanna be. And society has convinced us that if we bring up our faith at all, that's how we're gonna be viewed offensive, right, judgmental. And so just don't talk about your faith. Be more respectful, right? Let everybody go their own way. Let you believe what you wanna believe, I'll believe what I wanna believe. And so we grow silent. And we run over to the other end of the spectrum. And we start living over here. And what do we find over here? We find relational evangelism. And that sounds nice, right? Sounds a little bit more comfortable. Relationships, now hear me, relationships are important. But I lived here for way too long. And my mentality in that arena was this, man, if I'm just nice to people, and I'm just kind, and I'm just considerate, maybe I mention church here or there, and I talk about things, maybe say I'll pray for somebody, eventually they'll get the gospel from that. Give me five, six, seven years, maybe then I'll bring up my faith. Let me just love them well. And we wanna love people well, but can I just tell you, as kind as that is, and as respectful as that is, it's just as ineffective as the other. At some point, we actually have to share our faith. We have to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Okay, and so how do we do that? Right, that, that's the challenge and that's what's significant is that I think for too many times we sit there and we know this is an issue and it's like we're this patient sitting before the doctor and he's saying, listen, if you don't change the way that you eat, if you don't change these habits, your heart is going to fail. And we listen and we say, okay. And then we walk out the door and we eat whatever we want. And that, to me, is where the church currently stands with this question of evangelism. We know it's an issue. 
We know it's putting us at risk, and we've done very little to change it, and we're going to die. That, that's the trend. That's the direction. So what do we do? Right? How do we begin to change it? Well, the first thing I have to do this morning, y'all, I have to ask the question, and you know it's coming. But let me ask it. When was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody who doesn't know Jesus? And I'm not talking about you had a conversation where you had a spiritual dialogue, told them you were going to pray for them. I'm not even talking about inviting them to church. When's the last time you sat down with somebody who didn't know Jesus and proclaimed the good news of the kingdom? Now, my, my instinct, my intuition, based on my own personal conviction and experience, and what the research seems to indicate is that the majority of us would have to say it's been quite some time, if at all. And that's a problem. Now, even if it's been more regular and frequent, we still need to give consideration today to how do we do this? What does this look like? And that's where this parable, I think, is going to give us some insight. Okay, here's, here's the context that I think becomes fairly informative. Um, Luke is a historian. And, and he, probably more than any other gospel writer, puts things in somewhat of a chronological order. He's trying to show us the progression of Jesus' ministry, how that is then handed off to the church, and then how the church is launched. So there's something to be said for the order in which he places things. So before we look to this parable in chapter 8, I want to point out what happens after it. Okay? He, he begins to set this tone of evangelism, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and then he uses this parable that's somewhat of a guide. And then in chapter 9, what does he do? He comes to his 12 and he sends them out. He says, now go and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And then we get to chapter 10 and what does he do? He has the 72 and he sends them out. He says, go proclaim the good news of the kingdom. So with that progression in mind, I think it's reasonable to understand the parable that we find in chapter 8 as being the teaching and the foundational message that Jesus offers his followers to explain to them, this is how you go and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Okay, so with that context in mind, Let's pick it up in verse 4 and read what it has to say. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on the good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. And when he said this, he called out, Whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are those who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on the good soil, well, it stands for those with a noble and good heart. You hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. And I love this parable. One of the reasons I love it is Jesus just flat out tells you what it means, right? It's easy to research, easy to understand. It's right there for you, okay? It's not a whole lot of mystery here. But here's the tendency we have when we read this parable. The tendency I feel like we have is to focus on the soils, don't we? 
Right? I mean, the natural question would be, so what soil are you? How do you receive the word of God? Right? Does the devil come and take it away from you? Do you have that hardened heart, that rocky path that receives it with joy for a little bit, but in the time of testing you fall away? Or are you just consumed with life's worries and riches and pleasures that it chokes it out? How do you receive the word of God? Be that fourth soil, right? That'll preach. It's a good message. And maybe in the background it's something we should consider. But it's not the lens to which we want to look at it today. Okay, here's what we find. When Jesus begins this parable, he talks about the farmer who sows and who scatters. And all three of those words come from the same root, to sow which is why it's not typically referred to as the parable of the soils, but the parable of the sower. This is a parable that is not so much about how we receive the word of God, but how we proclaim the word of God. And we can learn some valuable lessons in this. Now, here's the first thing I wanna point out for us, and I wanna do it in context of what we see in chapter nine and 10. Notice what Jesus is telling his followers. Right? He brings the 12 in chapter 9 and he tells them to go out and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And he says, now, if you encounter somebody that doesn't welcome you, shake the dust off your feet and move on. Chapter 10, he tells the 72, when you encounter somebody that doesn't welcome you, go into their streets and curse them. Take the dust off your feet and move on. And then in this parable, he identifies three soils that do not receive the word of God. So understand that one of the first things that Jesus is informing his followers is that when we go and proclaim the good news of the kingdom, many people will not receive it. We should expect and anticipate rejection. Now that, that's not exactly the most encouraging and uplifting message, right? Now go and sow and be rejected, right? But there is some freedom in it, okay? Because here's the freedom. When we begin to understand that sense of rejection, we begin to see it's not really about us, is it? So let's, let's at least look and consider what, what is it that we see when these people reject the word of God, right? The first one is that the devil comes and, and he takes the word of God away, right? He creates the separation. The, the name for the devil there actually does imply to create separation from, not just hostility and hatred and opposition, but to create separation. And I think that serves as a reminder to you and me that one of the main things the devil is trying to achieve in this world is to create a separation between us and God. And so here's my point when I think about that. If that's the task of the devil, then I don't wanna help him out. If there's gonna be separation from people and their ability to hear the word of God, I don't want it to be because I have failed to share it. Because that's helping him out, not the kingdom. All right, so the first thing we need to understand is that we need to be faithful in sowing this gospel and proclaiming this word of God. Now, we will also see people that are gonna hear it and receive it with joy for a little bit, but trials are gonna come, testing's gonna come, and they're gonna fall away. That's gonna happen. Others are gonna receive it, but life is going to choke it out. That word choke means to crush, to oppress, to overwhelm, to actually cause to die, right? That anxieties, fears, concerns, the desire for wealth and riches, the desire for pleasure and whatever it is that we can satisfy ourselves are going to overwhelm our desire for the good news of the kingdom. And those people are not going to mature. That word mature means that they're not gonna produce a crop at all. They're gonna be ineffective, stagnant. Right? So, so what we have here is a very clear teaching repeatedly that Jesus is gonna say, you go and this is gonna fail 75% of the time. 
But the freedom in that is to understand it's not about you, right? Our abilities are not what makes the sowing of the gospel successful, okay? Paul's going to say it repeatedly, that I, that I sow the seed, but God's the one who makes it grow. Okay, so what we need to be doing is we need to be faithful and we need to be obedient. The freedom in this is that it's not really about you, that we could be the best evangelist on the planet, and we could have the best gospel presentation you've ever seen that makes Billy Graham look silly, and still people are going to walk away. And that's okay. It's not about you. So those fears and those inhibitions, let them go. Expect rejection. Now the other reason that that's somewhat important is because is Jesus is not just telling us it's gonna be difficult, he's showing us what to look for. You're gonna share this gospel, and let me tell you how people are gonna react. They're gonna react this way, this way, and this way. Who you wanna find is this one. Fourth soil. This is who you are after. And so what is a fourth soil person, right? What does this look like? Well, a noble and good heart, right? There's some character, there's some integrity, but what they do is they hear the word of God and they retain it. They hold fast to it. They grab a hold of it, they persevere. Right? They can withstand all those trials, all that testing, all those can earthly concerns, and then they produce a crop. They actually go and do something with it. Those are the people that we're after. Right? It's this understanding that we are to go and find those who want to be disciples who can then go make disciples. Right? In the parable, Jesus references that what they produce is a crop that's a hundredfold. It's this idea of a movement. We're looking for those people who are ready to hear and understand the power of the kingdom of God. So we need to understand all of the possible reactions so that when we find that person, that's where we invest our time. That's who we're looking for. Now, how are we gonna find them, right? The, the way that we find the reactions of these different soils is by proclaiming the word of God, right? That's what we do. We don't need to give special time and attention to unique strategies and methodologies. It's a very simple message. It's the word of God. And here's the good news. It doesn't matter what season of life you're in. It doesn't matter if you're old, young, retired, working, student. Everyone needs to hear the word of God. This is not something you retire from and take a break from. This is not something you wait to grow into and mature into. Everyone needs to figure out how they can proclaim the good news of the kingdom and exalt the word of God. So here's how I want us to look at that this morning. There, there are three suggestions, practical suggestions, that I want to encourage you to begin working on in terms of how we can do this as a church. Here's the first one. I want you to think about your testimony. Okay? Now, a testimony is simply what your life was like before Jesus, how you met Jesus, and what your life is like after Jesus. We need to be able to tell our story well, all right? That is one way that we invoke the word of God. And so I would encourage you, begin thinking about your story. When you're driving to work, driving around town, going to school, when you have free time, think about what is my story and how can I exalt the word of God by telling people what he's done in my life? We need to be ready to bring that up in any conversation. Here's another one. Bible stories, the word itself. See, what we're seeing here is that it's not our ability that makes this successful, it's the power of the word of God. And so if we leave that behind when we share our faith, then we have no chance at success. So how are you gonna be able to articulate the power of the scriptures? Here's what I would suggest. Think of some of your favorite Bible stories. 
but whatever they are, pick them. And figure out a way to tell those stories naturally in a stretch where you wouldn't have to actually sit down and open up your Bible and read it word for word. You don't have to commit it to memory, but you can faithfully and accurately recount stories from the scripture. We need to be able to do that and bring those into conversation very naturally. And then the third one is the gospel itself. It's a simple message, okay? And we see it repeated multiple times in multiple ways throughout the scriptures. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus was a man accredited by God by many miracles, signs, and wonders. But it was God's plan to hand him over to the hands of sinful men so that they would put him to death. So that God could set him free from the agony of death and show us that death had no hold on him. Therefore, God is taking just this Jesus whom you've crucified and made him both Lord and Messiah. It's the gospel. That is the power. Not in your ability, not in mine, but in the word of God. So if we can take those three things and figure out how to share our story, how to talk about Bible stories from the scripture and share the gospel, then we have the chance to find this fourth soil person. But if we leave that out, then we're searching for something with with no real ability and no real understanding of how we're ever going to find it. So that's the first thing. Now, let me talk a little bit more practically what we're going to do here as a church, okay? Uh, I don't have time on a Sunday morning to go into all the details of how we can hopefully do that well and meaningfully. So here's what I'm gonna do. For the next couple of months, I'm gonna come visit you in your Sunday school classes, one at a time. And we're gonna continue this conversation. And I'm gonna spend some time with you on a Sunday morning and we're gonna have more of a dialogue and talk about what does this look like? And how can we do this well? How can we do this effectively? And we're gonna start working through what that looks like in a more intimate setting. I look forward to seeing you soon on a Sunday morning in your Sunday school to have this conversation. But while I'm doing that, and while you're waiting on me, here are some two other things I'm gonna ask you to start doing. I want you to start thinking of people in your life that don't know Jesus. And I actually want you to create a list. So sometime today, maybe this afternoon, maybe at night before you go to bed, I want you to write a list of everyone in your life that doesn't know Jesus. Who the people that God is maybe entrusting to you? Look through the contacts on your phone. Look at your friend list on Snapchat or Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, whatever it is that you're using, and make your list. And if you can't generate much of one, then you need to change how you're living. And you need to start rubbing shoulders with people that are lost. And if you don't know if they're a believer or not, well, then you need to be more intentional in your relationships with them and get to understand their stories in a very non-judgmental way. But I want you to generate a list, and then here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray. Shocker, right? Pray. I want you to pray over those names, and I want you to ask God specifically, Lord, show me five, at least five, that you want me to go to. And let the Spirit prompt you and begin praying in such a way with such intentionality. And then here's the other thing I want you to do this week. I want you to actually share the gospel with somebody that's lost. That may sound a little uncomfortable, maybe a little forced, but can I just tell you, if there's a part of you that's going, well, I don't know if I'm ready for that. I don't know if that's me. Let me think through that. Can I just tell you, we don't need more knowledge. We don't. It's obedience-based discipleship. What's killing us right now is obedience. It's it's not about your ability. It's not about 
knowing exactly what to say. It's being faithful and taking these things and when given the opportunity, when it's spirit-led and not forced, to be willing to be courageous enough to share the gospel with somebody that needs to hear it. That's what we need to do. See, let me go back to that opening illustration. Here's the concern. This is when we begin to understand what kind of value we've put on those that are lost. Right? Because on one level, if we just sit around and we just wait for lost people to show up in our life, then that's not putting a whole lot of value. Maybe someday they'll show up to church and then I'll tell them. Or maybe we go to that second level and we're a little bit more intentional. We do a few things and we try, but after a while we just kind of give up and we move on. Where we need to live as the church is in that third level where it's all we can think about. It consumes our thoughts because we see the value of others. And I just tell you this morning, y'all, we don't have enemies. We don't have foes. We don't have strangers. They're people. And they're broken. And they're hurting. And they need Jesus. They're valuable. Four or five years ago, I took my first trip to India. And I met this man named Robin. It wasn't his given name. They choose English names a lot of times to make it easier on us when we meet them. <clears throat> Robin had this infectious smile, just lit up the room. <clears throat> Great guy. And I learned as I got to know him that he was a newer believer, been a believer for a couple of years, and um, was actually being asked to, to pastor this little village outside of Delhi. And so we had the chance to go and visit this village uh, not too long ago, spent, spent the afternoon there and kind of see his work and meet these people. And as we were driving out there, we got to hear Robin's testimony. And Robin had a life that began very tragically. He began to explain to us that he was an orphan. And the way that he was orphaned was that he was actually in the room and his father took the life of his mother by setting her on fire and then leaving him to his own. And that's how he was orphaned. And so he went through most of his childhood with a fierce anger towards his father. With one purpose, one cause, to find his dad and to take his life as an act of revenge. But he was orphaned. No resources, no real capabilities. He bounced from relative to relative, temple to temple, place to place, just doing everything he could to survive. And I don't honestly remember the specifics of how it happened, but it was in that state, it was in that season that the word of God found him and he discovered the beauty of Jesus. And his life was instantly changed. And he began to walk not in that spirit of hate, but with that joy and that smile that was so evident when we met him. And now he doesn't go about his days looking to find his father to avenge the loss of his mother, but to forgive him for the loss of his mother. And I would hear this testimony, and man, it just didn't make sense to me. <clears throat> Here's this guy that has had that sort of a tragic of an upbringing, living in a country that is saturated with polytheism and idolatry. Right? How could it be possible that he could ever 
hear that good news. And as I considered his story, it took me back to this verse that I reflected on so much during that trip. It's this verse that we see Jesus explain to his disciples when he sends out the 72. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest to send out his workers. And through most of my life, I would read that verse and I would focus on the fact that the workers were few. And that's where my attention went. We need more people to evangelize. We need more missionaries. And I would submit to you that I probably missed the more powerful part of that verse. Because when I looked at Robin and his life, what I saw is that the harvest is plentiful. Our God is at work. I looked at that story and I was so stirred by the reality that there is not a corner on this earth that God isn't pursuing. Why? Because he values you. <laughs> we don't have a God who, who sits and shrugs his shoulders and says, well, maybe one day they'll find me. He doesn't just try for a little bit and then give up and move on. No, he will do everything he can to seek and save the lost. He will leave the comforts of heaven and endure the agony of death because he values you. If that's how he views us, then how much more should we do that for him? So my hope today is that we could move forward in a spirit of trust and see our God for who he is and how he loves and let go of our inhibitions, and our concerns, and our anxieties. That we wouldn't lean on our own understanding, our own capabilities, but we would acknowledge him in everything. And we will see him guide our steps and show us this beautiful reality that the harvest is plentiful. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we need you. So guide us this morning. Send your spirit. Father, let us move boldly and courageously to see the work of your hands. Father, we pray for thousands to be saved, hundreds of churches to be planted, that we would be faithful followers who understand the task that you have given to us, that we would focus our attention on igniting a movement that far exceeds our expectations or our imagination. Father, and that we would do so because we value those who you have entrusted to our time and to our care and because we trust you. So guide our steps. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me offer a word of invitation. Obviously, this is a time in the service that if you want to join this church, we'd love to have you. Uh, <clears throat> if you need to make a decision about your faith, right, if you want to truly profess in the gospel, if that's something you've never done before, then we want to celebrate that with you. If you need prayer for anything, then come forward and, and let us know so that we can pray for you and celebrate what God is doing in your life. But wherever you are and whatever the Spirit is prompting, let's respond in the spirit of obedience. Let's stand together as we sing this song of invitation. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. 
first and then Miss Caroline. Thank you, Casey. I was just asking Jeremiah when, how this worked. Um, good morning, everybody. Um, I wanted to tell you guys about a really exciting opportunity for the Women to Women ministry. Um, we are starting up a new ministry branch called At the Well, and we're super excited about it. Um, Ann Turner and Kim Davis and I have been kind of praying through this and um, at the well comes from John 4, which is, if you remember the story where a woman, a Samaritan woman, um, meets Jesus at the well, and she encounters him and finds Jesus, and then she goes off and tells everyone she knows and shares her story, and people come and they find Jesus as well. And so that's kind of what we're hoping with at the well is that we would share our stories. Um, we're gonna have a woman each time. Sometimes it'll be from our congregation. This time it's gonna be Erin Owens, which we all love and adore. Um, she's gonna be sharing her story with us. Um, but other times we may choose a, a, a woman from our community um, to share about a, maybe a ministry that they're running. Um, so we're super excited about it. It's gonna be March the 9th um, and it's gonna be in the parlor. And another thing we're asking everyone to bring is a gently used purse. And I'm going to say that if you can't make it, you can bring them to Jeremiah's office. That's okay with you. <laughs> um, and we're also going to ask if you would fill them with any kind of toiletries or feminine hygiene products. And we're going to give these to the women of the Presbyterian Night Shelter. So um, anyways, we're excited. We hope you guys can come. We would ask also that you would invite a friend. Um, we're, our hope when all this is that, just as Jeremiah spoke about, is that we would kind of get to know each other, be more vulnerable with sharing our stories. Um, and we want this to be for all women. So whether they're a part of this church or they're a friend from work, this is a great opportunity to bring them to meet other women and to fellowship. Okay, thank you.
Hey, and I want to bring up three different things that happen to be in your worship guide, but you know what? They're big things for me. One is our church calls Vacation Bible School, you'll see it up there, we call it Kid Power Camp. And we do that because we believe that the focus is children having the power to share the gospel and to know Jesus Christ. And we do that in some different ways. One is we have a site here at University Baptist Church. We target people in our area and our community and we say, hey, come to our church. We would love to tell you about Jesus. Another place, we go to Westcliff Elementary. That's an elementary school just down the street, but you know what? That's a primarily Hispanic school. Very low income and families that love to hear about Jesus. Families that are very excited to hear and they're amazed. They say, wow, you guys would come to our school? to tell our kids, and then we think about the opportunity we have to know that there's prayer going up and down those hallways. There's the words of Christ and salvation happening in their library. There's pictures of Jesus being drawn in their art school. And so we're able to have that opportunity. And then this year, UBC has added something different. We've added a ministry to refugee site. And so this year, we are going to be um, going to Times Square Apartments. And it's going to be pretty neat. But you know what? If we're going to have three sites, that means we need a lot of people involved and a lot of people helping. At the Times Square um, apartments, I have to tell you, whenever I was talking with them last week, they said, oh, we've got a lot of families. Some of them are from the U.S. Some of them are from South America. And then they started naming off some countries that I could never find on a map. Some you'll know where they are, right? But Somalia, Congo, Burma, Lagos, um, Thailand, I can't even find that. Iran, Iraq, they have families from all over these places. We need people. If you need, if you can speak a language other than English, wow, right? We need you. But you know what? There's so many ways to become involved. And after worship today in Harris Hall, we have spots where you can sign up. And even if you're not available the week that we traditionally have our Kid Power Camp, we need your help, whether it's with follow-up afterward. We want to make sure that we talk to each one of these families and we say, Jesus loves you. And you know what? The Part of the reason that we believe you came to Kid Power Camp is because God wants to make sure that we tell you how special you are to him. I want to tell you about two other things that you're going to be able to find in your worship guide. One is, I call it fast and feast. I'm sure some of you guys have signed up for a day of, of fasting so that we can be praying for how God is going to unleash us and this church community. If you would like a text message or an email reminder that says, remember, your day to fast is coming up, you have to make sure that you get the information to Sonia. Because if we just want it to happen but we don't tell her, guess what? She can't even read my mind and I like work across the hall from her. So make sure that you email her and her email address is right in here and say, I am signing up for the ninth of every month. I want to make sure that I'm praying for God to unleash his Holy Spirit in this church, in this community to do amazing things. Please send me an email reminder and a text message reminder. And then a crazy thing happened. Some people have asked for text messages sent to their home, address, home um, phone number. If you have a landline, guess what? No email, no text messages go there. So make sure when you give her a phone number that it's actually a number that can receive a text message. And then the last thing that I wanted to remind you of is Presbyterian Game Night is coming up. And even though it's amazing that we're reminding you of our day in March, I have to tell you that it's really this Tuesday. So something crazy happens the very last Tuesday of every month. Adults from UBC go to Presbyterian Night Shelter and we have a great opportunity. 
As we have more and more people come, we are hoping to be able to expand that into the women and children's side as well, where our kids can come. And we're able to interact and do amazing things. But we would love to see you here on Tuesday night. Some people meet here in Carpool Over. Some people just meet at Presbyterian Night Shelter. I got to tell you what a gift that is and what a difference it makes. We would love to have you share your story at that place this Tuesday. I look forward to seeing you. <clears throat> Appreciate that. A lot of things happening. It's good stuff. I know you all are hungry, but I want to celebrate one more thing before you leave. Bethany, why don't you come up and join me? This is Bethany Greeson, good friend of mine. I guess I should acknowledge that the, her dad is the one that I've been referencing the last couple of weeks, uh, Kevin Greeson. A great, great family. Her mom, Holly, I mean, great siblings as well. Bethany and I have cultivated a friendship for several years now. She's been active in the Fort Worth community, working amongst refugees, and has been visiting our church for some, quite some time. And so we are so excited. Me in particular, I told her I'd do backflips when this happened, but I don't know if I can really pull that off. This, right, exactly. <laughs> But I'm very excited that she's decided to come and join our church this morning. And so as a response to her decision to make that uh, public and to confess that this is a church that she wants to make her church home, could you respond in a similar word of affirmation saying that you're going to commit to be the church that she needs during this time of her life and agree to do so by saying amen? amen. All right, we're going to celebrate that. Bethany's going to stay up here with me as we send the sending song. And then once we're done, please come forward and introduce yourself. But let's stand together and celebrate what God's done this morning. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise, we pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you only. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise, we pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only. Amen. Be blessed this week.